0: Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today I'm talking to Luís Pedro Coelho. Luís is the principal investigator of the Big Data Biology Lab at Fudan University in Shanghai. Luís, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Roman. Glad to be here. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. That's, uh, that's very nice to hear.
0: So um, we're here to talk about NGLS, which is a domain-specific language for uh, next-generation sequencing data processing. Uh, So give us an elevator pitch. What is NGLS and why
1: we might want to use it? So NGLS is, uh, as you said, a domain-specific language. So this means it's not a complete programming language. So we're not trying to do the same as, say, R or Python. Uh, We are just focusing on the problem where you have some NGLS data. Um, and you want to run some pipeline over it. But as you're probably aware, there's a lot of variations within this process. And so we have a what's a programming language to specify this. And our research hypothesis was that if we had a language that was focused solely on this problem, we could have a better user experience in the end. And so, when we can go over what we mean by user experience, but mostly we're focusing on making making things reproducible, m- making things easy for the user, um, giving them good error messages, and and we think that we can do this better in a controlled environment of a domain-specific language versus the the um, the uncontrolled environment, so to say, of of a language that's that can do anything, a general-purpose one.
0: What are some examples of the tasks of the analyses that uh,
1: you typically use Angelas on? So right now we've been heavily focused on metagenomics. So, and this is whole genome sequence metagenomics where there's either you have say, especially if you're working in an environment that's very well studied. For example, you have some human gut metagenome samples then a lot of what you can do is reference That That is, there are references out there published by many people, uh, including some where I've been a part of. And you can, you can start by pre-processing your data and then mapping it against these known references. And this, this can mean many things. Uh, and then summarizing the results in some way. So this would be the type of analysis that currently is very well supported
0: and using that analysis as, as an example uh can you explain like where using a domain specific language uh, and and specifically Angelas like what benefits it can give uh, over the alternative workflows
1: so one wh- one thing we would like to do is give the user uh, good error messages so i think a lot of tools work very well but they fail very badly and by this i mean when they work they work but when there's a problem when either the input data is is not exactly as they want or when the the user makes a tiny mistake you know just misspells a command line option or misspells a path then the tool will will not help the user solve that it will provide it will provide a very hard to read error message this is a very typical case it will fail silently it will output a result that's incomplete or wrong. And so there is where I think we can do much better. Uh, So for example, we do a lot of checking uh, even before we start the pipeline. So let's say the pipeline has five steps conceptually, and step number five is going to fail, because step number five requires that some resource be available. So in a typical general purpose programming language, the system would have to run steps one through four, and then at step five, it would fail. Uh, in our system, we can we can check directly that that the prerequisites for step five are not there, and this can mean you know things as simple as step five writes the output to a directory, and the user has misspelled the name of the output directory, so he has they have specified a directory that does not exist. So by the time it reaches step five the The program will fail. In a general purpose programming language, it's impossible to know that, that this directory would not have been created in one of the earlier steps. Uh, but in our system, we actually know that that's impossible.
0: And that distinction really reminds me the distinction between more static versus more dynamic programming language. So for example, in, I don't know, maybe in Python, if you call a function with the wrong number of arguments, then you won't find out until that function is called, uh, compared to a more static language like C++ or Java, where that those checks are performed before the program is run, right? And that's not a coincidence because you also uh, use this uh, static analysis, you use um, static typing, right?
1: Yes, that's correct. And our types are not the standard programming language types, although we do have those. But some of our types also correspond to to things like um, a, f- a set of fastq files. So those are those are built-in types. So we also have the traditional, you know, we have integers, we have strings, but then we have a type for that represents the conceptual idea of a set of short reads, which corresponds to a set of fastq files. And the language is typed, so the types are all, in, you, don't spec, you don't have to specify types because they can be inferred because the language is, again is, is fairly limited, but, but we, do, we do a lot of type checking, yes.
0: And what, was there a specific time uh, or specific occasion where when you get frustrated with the existing tools and how, how did the decision uh, to create your own language um, was uh, made?
1: Yes, it was. It was initially we were frustrated um, with the, especially with the possibility of making of making very simple mistakes, and the tools don't really check. Um, so a lot of these uh, workflow tools, including you know the traditional Make, but also a lot of the more modern ones. And basically, you have a set of files, and maybe at best you have the extension providing what type of file it is, right? So the, the, so if you have something that's a .txt, then you can assume that's a text file. If you have something .fq, you can assume that that's a fastq file, but that's the extent of typing in those languages. And so it's very easy to make mistakes. Uh, and this situation where your pipeline runs for five hours and then fails at the last step because you've mistyped the output directory, I mean this has happened to me hundreds of times and it's always very frustrating. So at at some point, you know at some point this frustration uh turned into okay, the computer should have warned me about this and we should have better systems. And and so then then this morphed into a set of discussions uh with other people and eventually we converged on the idea of okay, let, let's try to do something on a on a much more limited space and see if we, if by limiting our domain area, we can do better. So let's
0: take that example um, of doing metagenomic profiling. And uh, obviously on the podcast, it's hard to give a code listing, but walk us on, on the high level, walk us through the uh, steps that we would have to make in NGLS in this programming language to perform that analysis and how, how would that roughly look like in this programming
1: language? Okay, so probably you could actually start with some of the examples or the profilers we already provide. So for some of the standard analysis, you could just start with what we have um, and it's described in the paper. And so, it's, so you can start from that um, and either use them as is or start tweaking them to your use. And what they do is so they they start by loading the fast queue files that you provide, and And then this is another thing that's done always automatically is we run some basic fast queue statistics on them. so So again, the user does not have to specify this type of an, of process as a separate um, step in the pipeline. It's done automatically.
0: So by statistics, you mean things like read length, read quality, right?
1: Yes, exactly. Yes, and we and we, we output, uh, you know, some very simple graphs and diagrams. Uh, you know, at, I think m- most most people who have worked with fastq files are are used to seeing these these um, this type of statistics on the qu- quality per base um, per base position, etc. So that's the type of statistic we provide. And then you pre-process the the data, so you can trim the reads based on the, these quality scores. And again, again, we calculate the statistics after the after this trimming. So, you know, so you can see, for example, how many of your reads were, were discarded uh, after trimming. Um, you can you can also set the thresholding to say, you know, if the read after this becomes too short, we you want to discard it. Um then you, you can do things, for example, if you're working with say samples from from a human-associated microbiome. Um uh, we often want to throw away any human related reads so we can start by mapping them to the to the human genome with bwa for example
0: right so let's let's maybe walk through that part so how does that look like in your programming language do you have to specify the whole command to bwa or uh, or is it just a function call
1: it's just a function call if you do not want to specify anything um in term, so if, or if you want to accept all of the default parameters, it, there's a function call, called map, M-A-P. It takes two arguments. It take, the first argument is this, this set of reads that you want to map. And the second argument is what you want to map against. And here you have two options. One is you use some internal references. So for example, the human genome is a reference that's known to ngls so you can use so if you just specify that you want to use hg19 it knows that you want to use the human genome and it will automatically download it for you if, if it's the first time you're using it or you can pass your own FASTA file if you have one uh, and then you pass it as a file path on disk and what if uh, I want to provide some extra
0: arguments to do bwa or even use a different aligner
1: so if you have some other uh, arguments that you can specify and including you, there's a, a shortcut where you can then specify directly arguments that will, so you just specify a set of strings and they will translate directly to a, um, to command line arguments that are passed to BWA. So we do we do have a couple of other aligners. So min, Minimap 2 is also built in. Um, to, to use a, yet another aligner you would have to then extend NGLS. I mean, so internally the way this works is an aligner kind of like a, in an object oriented system. So you have this aligner interface where where an aligner has to to know how to create its index and how to transform fast queue reads into SAM files. But as long as you can provide this interface, then you could extend it to other aligners. So conceptually, it's not so har- it's not so hard. But the ones that are built in are BWA and Minimap two. Mm-hmm. And
0: so invoking that map function, it gives you like normally if you would do that in a terminal, it would result in a uh, let's say a BAM file that you can later process with other tools. Now yes. in Angelas, what is the return value of the of the map function and what can you do with it
1: so the return value is conceptually it's a bam file um, again we 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 compute some statistics on on that bam file uh, so if I'm not mistaken so we'll we'll compute how many reads were mapped uh, automatically there, there's so there's some tricks here so there's some things so so conceptually we run the map we run the map, runs BWA, produces a BAM file, and then we compute statistics on that BAM file. And then you can post-process it. In practice, some of these things are internally optimized so that they're done as a stream, so that the, the intermediate files do not actually exist on disk.
0: Right. But on the other hand, some people who think about the performance of their system, they may be confused and concerned like if you have a function returning a BAM file, does that mean you hold the whole BAM file in memory as a data structure in your programming language? And that's not the case,
1: right? No, no, that's a that's a that's a difference to compared to more traditional programming languages. So a lot of our data types correspond to files on disk and not data structures in memory. Right. So when you pass
0: values in your programming language, they are in a way references or pointers to things on disk and then you go one step further and say well they may even not exist on disk but they may be streamed right and so there's no need to keep the whole thing on disk um, completely but it's consumed at the same time as it's being produced
1: exactly that's so the intuition is that we're always generating a lot of these intermediate files, but we, the user can think about the process in that way, but as an optimization, some of them don't actually exist.
0: Okay, and then let's say you get your BAM file. Uh, what are some things you can do in NGLS with
1: a BAM file? So for example, so if, if you had mapped your metagenome against the human genome, now what you want to do is actually throw away any of the reads that map. And here map, you can even, you probably want to specify what you mean exactly by mapping. So BWA is very, very sensitive. So, so you probably want to say that you want, and we've benchmarked this a little bit, you probably want to say that you want to throw away anything that mapped as long as that mapping is at least 40 or 45 base pairs long. Uh, because the very short map, the very short uh, hits to the genome, they're, they can you get a lot of false positives there. But you can say okay, anything that's 40 base pairs or longer that map to the human genome, I want to discard, and then I want to convert this BAM file back to a fast FASTQ file, and then so the, and then you continue processing with now with a set of reads that are not coming from the human genome. So if you want to specify
0: those specific rules like what to regard as being mapped does the language allow that flexibility or do you have some
1: predefined uh, ways to to specify that uh, The language allows that flexibility so you you can specify fairly complex rules because you you specify um you have you write the, uh, you know and again it's not a lot of code it's it's a few lines um, but you can say for every for every mapped read, you know, if the read if the mapping length is above a certain threshold, then do this, else do that. Uh, so 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 you can specify all of these thresholds in different ways and and combine them include combine them in different ways as well. So can you somehow specify like do you have access in the
0: language? Do you have access to the various? Uh, Sam file columns, can you inspect them to create these rules?
1: Yes. So yes. So there's uh, not not just the columns. Some of them are. So the read. So the length of the. So so the length of the hit of the mapping. That's actually you actually have to compute a little bit from the cigar string, but you can you can access that. You can access the flags, using. Um, so you don't you don't act, you don't have to remember what the what the flags are. So you don't have to remember what bit number 3 is. You you specify it as you know as a mnemonic that's human readable. Right. So so that's one
0: advantage of having a domain specific language for NGS data processing, right? Because in a general purpose language um, if you don't intend it to be used specifically for bioinformatics, you would have support, let's say, for tab separated files, but then uh, you would have to do all the parsing and interpreting yourself. Yes. Okay. So where we stopped was uh, we have now filtered out the reads that map to, uh, let's say, a human genome, and we have a filtered set of uh, of FASTQ reads. Now, in your um, metagenomics profiling workflow, what what do you do next?
1: So. N- Next, you can, for example, get the taxonomic profile. And so here we have, you can use uh, tools like Motus or MetaFlan, and, and so those, those are also available, or you can map these reads to a gene catalog. Uh, so we also have some of those are, again, known references, known references, in, and so when I say known references, so they are not bundled with NGLS, but NGLS knows where to download them, so so the first time they're used, they they get downloaded and cached on the on the user's uh, computer, and then and then they're reused, so that the user doesn't have to specify you know you don't have to specify URLs, you just specify this mnemonic. Uh, so if you specify, for for example, for the human gut sample, you'd specify IGC, which is the integrated uh, Gene catalog, and NGLS would download it. Uh, both the catalog itself, which means you know, basically a big fasta file, but also some annotation files, so that later you can you can map the reads to the catalog, post-process the BEM file uh, as before, where you say, okay, this is what we consider to be a good hit versus versus not, and and later also summarize these results. So for example, you might say, I, I want to look not at the individual genes, but to get a profile of how many genes mapped into each individual um, orthologous group uh, of some sort or in each individual go term. Uh, and so that you get a summary at the more functional level. So we, so we can get both taxonomic profiles through M- Motus Metaflan type of tools, or more functional profiles by mapping to a gene catalog. Pretty cool. And so it sounds like you have a
0: very decent support for metagenomics because that's the field you yourself work in. But what if someone wants to use it for another NGS analysis, so things like RNA-seq, ChIP-seq, variant calling, does that make sense to use NGLS for for
1: those tasks? I think it does. Um so I n- I know some people at least have tried it because over the last, since the paper came out, which is now going to be um, about a year, I have gotten some emails of people saying they've, they're have they doing it and asking about it. So as you said, most of the focus on metagenomics is mostly derived from we were doing it and we were using it internally in our metagenomics data. So, and a lot of the effort on integrating Tools uh, and integrating references did come from metagenomics, but a lot of these other you know utilities of processing fastq files, processing bam files, they could be used for other for other NGS uh, applications or as part of uh, other NGS pipelines. Yes, it's more of a community thing. It's the commu- rather than a technical reason why the why the focus on metagenomics.
0: Right, but if someone wants to use AngularJS for a task that it hasn't been used before, inevitably there will be a, a tool that they need to call that is not integrated in AngularJS, And so can you talk about the uh, various ways in which AngularJS can be extended to support new tools, new workflows?
1: Oh, yes. So there's two main ways. So the first way is you can obviously fork the code and and write new code that supports it, and that will give you a lot of flexibility, obviously. And you can use all of these tricks we were talking about of pre-validating and and tr- turning things into streams so that intermediate files don't actually exist, etc. And then and then there's another way where if you specify if you specify a tool using a YAML file, so that's a text format file where you specify what um what the tool is so you give it you give it a name that can be used inside the ngls language and then you specify how to call it on the command line you you can specify um arguments including def- having default parameters then NGLS will will use it uh and we'll call it and and you can then you can then get an extra function within NGLS. And you still get some of the advantages and some of the some of the normalization uh, from is done automatically. So f- just to give a silly example, but this is this is the sort of minor thing that minor friction that sometimes trips people. Let's say you have a tool that processes fast queue files. And for some reason your tool supports GZIP files but does not support any other type of compression. And the user has files that have been compressed with bzip. Uh, So in this case, NGLS can do all of that uncompressing, recompressing on the fly for the tool so that the user doesn't have to specify these extra steps um, and maybe it introduces a little bit of extra computation. But from the point of view of the user, conceptually, if they have at some point in the pipeline, they have fast queue files, then, and this other tool takes fast queue files, this should, conceptually, this should work for the user. And so if there's some internal format conversions, NGLS does all of that internally.
0: But in order to do that, when you specify your tool in a YAML file, you have somehow to inform NGLS that this tool supports these compression formats may be using this particular flags and the other ones are not supported, right? How, how do you do
1: that? Yes, you have. So by default, we, as, we are very conservative and we assume that the tool does not support anything except the, you know, except the basic, uh, in this case, the basic fast Q file uncompressed. And then you can say that it does support GZIP or it does support PZIP2 or it does support XZ. But if you don't say anything, NGLS will helpfully uncompress it for you. And another thing we do, uh, and this comes back to domain-specific languages, is whenever you run NGLS, it asks you to cite a list of a list of uh, references. And so this includes uh, obviously we want people to cite our own paper, but this also includes any other tools that that are used in the pipeline.
0: Oh, that's very cool.
1: So if you if you use B W Y at any point and it asks you to cite B W Y, if you use uh, MetaFlan, it asks you to cite MetaFlan, or if you use Motus, it asks you to cite Motus, and if you specify an, another tool as a YAML file, then you can also add a field saying, okay, if the user use this, please ask them to cite this paper or this preprint or, you know, there's, it's. Uh, because i think this sometimes happens where tools get subsumed within larger pipelines and then the original author don't don't receive credit anymore so I'm, obviously we cannot force people to cite it but at least we want to make sure that you know it didn't get lost in the jumble so if, even if you're using a pipeline that was written by someone else that used some third person's tool we can still propagate that information and say you know please do cite this this author because they've contributed something
0: yeah that that is very true yeah. uh and one of the static analysis you mentioned one of the static checks is for example checking that if a a later stage of the pipeline needs some file that that file is produced by an earlier stage how do you do those checks for these user supply tools? uh, Is there a way to specify in the YAML file? Like what, what are the files that uh, a tool consumes and produces? Uh,
1: So there's two, two things. So one, one, yes, so the you can specify that this is an input file of some sort that needs to be present. Uh, Or I think you can also specify, you don't specify output files, um, per se, Uh, And the other thing is you can specify some code. You can just say, run this script and then, you know, it's a bash script that can, you know, internally do whatever other checks you wish, but you can, so you can say, if the user is using this tool, then before anything is run, please run this initialization slash checking script. And if that script outputs an error, then the process will stop there.
0: Okay, but that's a dynamic check, right? But what about static checking? Can you be sh- can you check those uh, invariants or those properties that uh, if a file is requested later, it, it is produced by an earlier tool?
1: No. So this check is done before. It's done before interpretation. So the, so there's two steps. AngelS th- takes your script, um, and you know it does it does it parses the script, and then it runs all of these checks before it starts interpreting the script. So my my scenario is this.
0: Uh, let's say I made a typo in in the name of the file, or I, I renamed the file in one place and didn't rename it in, a, in another place, yep. right? And so my um, step one, for example, runs for, I don't know, two days. Uh, yes. let's, let's say it's a, it's a genome assembly. It runs for two days. It outputs... Um, a set of contexts, and then the second step uh, should take those contexts. But uh, the the file name is wrong there. Can can you ch- can you catch that mistake?
1: So in in that case, so in Angel, so in that case in s so and we can do assembly, or we call we call MegaHead, and then so you don't so the contexts. Again, the contexts are an object in NGLS. so they they represent some some files on disk so but those would be checked you know as as types so you have so if you have a you have a variable within the NGLS script that's to which you assign the output of assembly and then for example you can later use it as a target for mapping uh and in that case. In that case, yes, if you had somehow misused the name of the variable, then it would have been caught.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. So so I guess your answer is you don't work directly with files, and so that's why you don't have to think about file names, but you work with these higher
1: level variables in your language, right? Yes. The only, we work with files if they're input files. So if, you're, if, you're, if you have a later step that Uses say the assembly fi- the assembled files, um, and and say you had some other previous assembly and you're running some tool that does some comparison for example. So now maybe your assemb- your initial assembly runs for a few days and then afterwards, you want to take those contigs and and somehow compare them against another path on disk. So you if you if that other path on disk was flagged internally as this is a this is a input path, then this is checked right at the start of right before interpretation. So even before assembling starting the whole assembly process, NGLS would check does this file exist and is it readable by me? So if there was some typo or permission issue, it would say, okay, I cannot run this pipeline because you know at, at, at line 57 um, we I will fail.
0: And how hard is it to add new types to NGLS? So it's it's cool that it knows about context, but let's say the latest file format that someone invented, like maybe GFA or uh, some format that hasn't been added yet by, by you, how hard is it for other people to contribute new file formats or new um, types?
1: Yes. So that's now it's not so easy. Um, so we do, you do have to write um, you do have to write new code internally. So right now, internally, the the list of file formats or the list of types is a fixed list. Um, it's it's an it's basically an enumeration type uh, within the language. So you'd have to you'd have to do it as a as a proper fork of the code and you know and contribute it as a pull request.
0: Right. And uh, if you wanted to do that, uh, then... Uh, I mean, not, not you, Luis, but uh, if, if the listener wanted to, to do that, they would be perhaps a little bit surprised, maybe pleasantly, maybe not so, <laughs> because the um, uh, the language that Angelas itself is written in is not your typical Python or Ruby or even Java, but it's, uh, it's a language called Haskell, not to be confused with Pascal. Uh, And so why did you decide to use that language? And uh, yeah, what benefits do you think it it confers?
1: So the initial decision, again, was somewhat driven uh, more by community than by technical reasons, although there's some technical reasons. So there's there's a big overlap between the group of people who work on domain-specific languages and the group of people who work with Haskell or on Haskell. For example, for parsing the language, it's incredibly pleasant. There's I mean if you if you've worked with some of these things before you you know that there's these these concepts of you have a grammar, you specify a grammar of the language, and and you even have some tools where you specify the grammar in in one you specify the grammar and they generate C C or C code for you. But within Haskell, there are tools where you specify the grammar within Haskell, and and it really looks like pseudo code, except it just runs and parses and does the parsing for you uh, efficiently, and and it's very it's very nice. Uh, and then, then having said that, there are other reasons why, for example, Python would not be appropriate. So, in particular, just just efficiency. Uh, so some of some of these some of these um, operations where if you're say looping over a big BAM file and every and for every uh, line of the BAM file you're processing some in, you're processing some logic on it. If you implement this in Python, it's going to be slow. Uh, and so we wanted something where you have at least some compilation going on. Uh, so it couldn't be just an, an inter a, a language that has just an interpreter. So it was a mix of these two things, and then, and then inertia plays a role. So once once we had this initial version of the language, implementation which was, which was working, um, you know, it's then then you can you keep improving it.
0: Sure, um, but I think one concern when using Haskell is that not so many people know it or, and it's not the easiest to learn language. And so the concern is it makes harder for other people to review your code or to contribute to your code. Have you have you noticed anything like that? And how, how many contributions from outside uh, people do you get?
1: Yes, that's, that's definitely a concern. Um, so we have had maybe fewer contributions we have uh, we have had more contributions of things around the code so including and this is also why we have this facility where you can where you can specify extra functionality just using a YAML file as opposed to having to write Haskell uh, so I think core Haskell contributions have been maybe three Three people have done it uh, and then we've had this, some minor things here and there from from a larger group, but a lot of these a lot of these projects you have a long tail where you have a very small number of core contributors. Um, but yes, Haskell does pose um, some sort of barrier. And then especially,
0: you know, being API, you don't want to write all the code yourself. You want to take some PhD students or postdocs and make them write the code for you. So. <laughs> How hard is it to find people to work on a Haskell codebase and do you typically find people who are already familiar with the language or do you have to teach them?
1: Um so I've only been a PI for a short time and and actually now we've we're in a bit of a weird situation as all of us because of the um so you know we're all working from home so it's been a bit different. Um we so we haven't found that many people who know Haskell, we found some. Uh, sometimes there are people who who don't know, but know some other language in that family. So uh, some standard ML has popped up a couple of times, for example. People say, oh, I, I don't know Haskell, but I know standard ML, and so I think I could learn it. Would you
0: advise someone who is getting into bioinformatics, uh, would you advise them to, to learn Haskell?
1: I would not advise them to learn Haskell if that's the only programming language they're going to learn. So I'd probably advise them to learn Python first and um, uh, maybe but but I would actually advise if you if you um if you know programming and you and you know Python and you know C and you know C++ um so you've you've got your basic stuff down. Um, then maybe learning Haskell, even if you're not going to use it, I think it expands your thinking. If Even even if you're then going to be writing it, not writing Haskell, but writing Python, it does expand your thinking a little bit so that I've noticed that the way I write Python has changed now that I also write Haskell. So you become more aware of concepts like, is this pure? Um, can I separate IO from, from computation? And even even when I'm writing Python, I think more about those things now and maybe this didn't make sense for people who don't know Haskell but in Haskell you you have to be strictly separate when you are doing pure computation that is when when you're computing a function where the inputs uh, determine the outputs and that's all the function does it's so it's a function in the mathematical sense versus when you have a computational subroutine where the subroutine can do anything including performing io where io is could be reading files writing files printing text on the screen any so in haskell this is a this is a fairly strict separation and i think it's useful to 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 have that in the back of your mind sometimes even even if then you're not writing haskell so i'd recommend that people learn it as a you know, as a, as a completely different language, uh, I mean, because it, it, if you know Python and uh, and you say, "Oh, well, I'm going to check out how Ruby looks like," it's not going to expand your thinking in the same way. That's true. That's true. Uh,
0: now, another focus of Angular is reproducibility, and I think you have pretty strong views on reproducibility. So, can can you talk about that?
1: Yes. So, so my views are are that. And you know, I can linking back to this idea of of a, a pure function. So I think that that the outputs should depend only on the inputs and the code as much as possible. So the so I'm, I'm not sure we're 100 percent there yet, but our ultimate goal would be that if you have an NG less script and a data set, then when you when you take those two together that determines the output completely so that there's no free variables left. And so we've done a few things already. Uh, some, and these are very simple design decisions, but for example, the, so th- the script uh, is versioned. So th- actually the first line of an NGLS script is always the word NGLS. And then you specify the version of NGLS that you want to use. And then, if you use any other um, modules, so then you they're also versions. So you say, I want to use this. So if you this reference version 1.0, 1.1, and so this this means that if I if I have a script from you, for example, um, that script will will specify. Um, so because even ngls has already changed a few times some some of the internal behaviors have changed. But that script will specify which which behaviors it wants. And in at least one case, um we even do things in a slightly wrong way to 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 reproduce the to reproduce the behavior of an old version of NGLS.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. So can you defend that point of view? Like if you have a bug in NGLS, instead of Fixing that bug, I think. Do you advocate for like supporting that bug for that specific version? Like, if the user requests that version of Angular S, and you know that the result produced by that version of Angular is wrong, and I don't know what what you think. Is is there a degree uh, separation there? So, if it's just a little bit wrong, or is it? disastrously wrong would you approach those two situations differently
1: yes those situations are approached differently so one thing we never do is we never we, we do never change the behavior uh, so there's two options one is we say we refuse to run it we say uh, we say um, this this version is no longer recommended so please do not use it uh, and we will and you need to update the version so at least now we're not producing wrong results, but we're also warning the user that that they shouldn't be doing this uh so we prefer explicit errors to silent behavioral changes and the other the other case is where we we give a warning we say this version is not recommended, but we're still going to give you the old results and this was a bit of a judgment call because the it's it's a bug. It's a bona fide bug because the logic is wrong, but it's a it's a case that in our experience happens less than a million in one, and and so this is also why it took us so long to figure it out. Uh, so we were running it for for several years before we realized that there that there's this edge case that's handled wrong, and so the while it's not defensible that we should use the old behavior. In practice, it's a rounding error. You cannot, you know, if you if you have if you have a data set with a hundred million reads, which maybe fifty of those will be handled slightly different in one version versus the other. So we're so in that case, it's a judgment call that it's probably better to still give the user the old wrong results uh, rather than to upgrade, although we do warn them. And other cases, what what the behavior is, is the the newer versions of the interpreter refuse to run, if you ask for an old version. And there are also a lot of changes that are different. So where, for example, where we've changed, say, the default value of some API. Uh, so these were there there were some API errors in the sense where we've we had one default and then we realized that the user almost always wants the other one and so in that case th- this is a different type of bug because th- then they use we we realize that the it's the api that's that's wrong and so in that case we can change the language and change the api but still preserving the old behavior for for the previous users
0: yeah that makes sense and then there are cases where the downstream tools that you're well not downstream tools but um the tools you're invoking, they may have some randomness inside them. So they're using some random seeds and hopefully they allow to set, to pin those seeds to specific values. But usually people tolerate uh, slight changes. I mean, it may be a bit annoying uh, or even maybe not. Maybe some people view this as an additional check an additional sanity check. So if from run to run, you have drastically different, you get drastically different results that uh, tells you that something is wrong with your analysis. Um, So can you make a case for the perfect byte for byte reproducibility compared to like rough reproducibility where the results are like mostly the same and result in the same statistics?
1: Yes, I do think that we should try to aim for bite for bite reproducibility. So in practice, I found that that most people are actually uncomfortable if the results shift a bit. Uh, even if qualitatively it's it's the same, I think it's actually hard for users to... So if you have someone say that they've done their analysis and they've produced some some plot where they show you know some some biological result, and and then they they rerun their analysis and, and the biological results change, but but the plot has changed in a way that that it's it's noticeable that it's no longer exactly the same thing. What I found that is that people end up then s- storing and saving all their intermediate files on disk, so that this doesn't happen, uh, and that people. Are a bit uncomfortable for for example say you submit a paper uh, today and then the reviewers say oh this is good but can you please just you know do this little tweak and show the data again in a slightly different way and people rerun their analysis and now the plot looks different enough that you can s- that even though the message is the same you can see that the results are not the same i think. In my experience, people are actually uncomfortable with this. Uh, so end users do become a little bit worried um, that this is the case. And I've also heard this argument that, you know, it's actually kind of a sanity check. Um, and I think there's some validity to that. But it's also, it, it is a pretty, you know, it only catches the most egregious uh, of cases. So yes, yeah, so, if, so if your results depend on the random seed, then yes, this will be caught if you just run it with a different random seed. Um, but I would still prefer if that was done in a more controlled fashion, where you're saying, okay, if I want to, I want to run this with different random seeds. Then you explicitly do that rather than, rather than relying on, on it as a side effect of the fact that, that our systems are not, you know, cannot achieve reproducibility. So, I think there's a, so I think there's some practical advantages to this perfect reproducibility, where you can confidently tell users, or including yourself as a user, that it's fine to throw away all of the intermediate results because, you know, as long as you have the data, you can get them again because in the results and the data are equivalent to each other, just give just given more computation. And I think that this argument that it provides a sanity check is actually uh, weaker than it seems. It only catches the most egregious of, of, you know, of dependencies. Fair enough. Uh,
0: you also brought an interesting topic of, let's say, plotting. Um, so I, I'm wondering how you approach that. Let's say I run my analysis, then I want to generate some plots, maybe in R uh, yes. or, or Python. So, would you advocate integrating that R code somehow with AngularS uh, tracking its versions, or how would you approach this?
1: So so far, and and what, how we see it is, so we see this second uh, step as as a separate step. So we, so most of the analysis have these two steps, where first you have this initial computation where you are still handling the raw reads and somehow computing some derived matrices. And in the second step where you're doing more data science type of work, where you have some data matrices, where typically you have samples in one dimension and some sort of features on the other dimension. And I think this requires different tools. I actually think that it would be great if there were more domain specific languages for, uh, for this type of work. Rather than, rather than uh, Python or R, I, or even if they're embedded within Python and R, if some, I think this, it would be great if we had uh, more data science, more data science, uh, domain specific programming language. I think there's, I think there's a space there for someone to do a cool thing. But it's not NGLS. It's a, it's something else. It's a data, data science slash plotting domain specific language
0: fair enough but one could argue that ggplot for example is an embedded domain specific language for for yes. plotting or dplyr is an embedded domain specific language for data manipulation
1: yes those those are those are those are good examples yes so let's compare anglas with the uh,
0: other tools roughly in that space so one analogy that comes to mind is because anglas is managing sort of workflows uh of like other programs being run, then it's maybe in roughly the same space as uh, the common workflow language CWL or uh, you know Nextflow or even tools like Make or Snake Make. Um, yep. So yeah, h- how would you say Angelas uh, compar- compares to those tools? Is there any um, is there ever any reason to prefer those other tools to Angelas?
1: Um oh yes, I mean obviously those tools are general purpose so if you're working you know if if you're working in a domain that NGLS doesn't cover you should use them and I think this is the trade off is those tools are uh, achieve you know cover a much broader domain um and i and I think but I still think that if you're working within the smaller domain that we cover we can provide a better user experience so I think this is the trade off that that we from the start of the project, the project has bet on is that by by covering just a tiny part of the problem space, we can do better than a general purpose tool. But obviously a general purpose tool you know, can do much more.
0: And then another area which is is very close to what you're doing. So you're doing metagenomic profiling and then there is the 16S profiling and we have uh, tools like uh, Chime or Mother there. Um, so, what are your thoughts on on those tools, and can Angel uh, S compete with them?
1: So, I okay, I'm not an expert on 16s. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of knowledge that you have to have when you work with 16s data. So, uh, I don't want to risk s- saying something that um, the experts will say will say is very ignorant. So, I I normally try to stay away from commenting on out of a out of a respect for the amount of knowledge that that there, that's necessary when you're working with 16s data I think there's a lot of specific uh, specific knowledge that you need to have about how uh, how you know how how your sample processing in the lab and the choice of primers and the choice of uh, sam- uh sample processing interacts with how your analysis is going to work and, how, and all of those things I I um, i don't feel confident commenting on
0: right, but those expert choices they concern the specific pipeline, the specific workflow, but yep. if one of those experts would want to recreate an environment similar to chime with angelas would, would there be anything preventing them from doing that? Are you looking forward to uh, competing with with chime if uh, that community became interested in NGLS?
1: Yes, that could. In that case, it could be an opportunity. Yes, if the, if there's someone who who does know um, their their 16s processing and is and is interested in in trying trying to do something uh, with NGLS and then you know b- based on this same set of things, where you know trying trying to get trying to get an environment that's re- that's reproducible that produces. Uh, a good experience for the user that that re, um, then then yes, I think there's an opportunity there, but i would I would definitely need someone who knows there's you know there's sixteens sure is there anything
0: we haven't talked about that, that you would like to mention?
1: No, I think this has been great so far i mean um, i mean i I welcome if people want to try it out and uh, and give me feedback uh, I mean as I said i think I think the general concept of th- doing more domain-specific languages, I think it's still a bit underexplored. I think there's a lot of opportunities, uh, and we we've seen some. You're right. Uh, so ggplot, uh, even some of these fancy machine learning libraries uh, that we see nowadays are often a kind of embedded domain-specific language within Python, where you specify where you're specifying a computational graph uh, rather than Actually computing something, but I, th- I think there's still more space f- for us to explore to explore this possibility of can can we do better with domain-specific languages than trying to do everything in Python and R?
0: Okay, Luis, uh, it's been great. Uh, I encourage everyone to try out Angios on their next uh, NGS analysis uh, project, and thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you, Roman.